If you are able, please stand to show reverence to the Lord as we join in hearing his word. Our Old Testament reading this morning comes from Zechariah chapter 9, verses 9 through 12. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea, and from the river to the ends of the earth. As for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Return to your stronghold, O prisoners of hope. Today I declare that I will restore to you double. And our New Testament reading is Romans chapter 7, verses 15 to 25 on page 943. For I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, how grateful we are to you for this, your word. Thank you that it is living. It is powerful. It is sharper than any two-edged sword. And it, Lord, is able to call us to life. And we give you thanks. And we ask that you would enable us to hear your word and that you, Lord Jesus, are exalted in it. And our hearts are strengthened to obey you by the power of your spirit. For it's through your name, Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen. Good morning. Good morning. 
Today, we're starting a new sermon series titled Kinship, the path to and destination of the adopted children of God. So over the next four weeks or so, we want to look at the glorious gift of being adopted by God. Now, kinship is a term that's used by Surge, which is a mission organization. It was formerly called World Harvest Missions. It was started by uh, Paul Miller. And sonship is, an, is the original term that they use. And sonship is it's for those who struggle to apply the love of God to their hearts. And it's, sonship is something that, that uh, World Harvest Mission Surge takes their missionaries through before they send them to the mission fields. Because what a tragedy it would be if you're there on the mission field and you're not really sure about the love of God yourself. You don't have to say anything about that. <laughs> but that would be, be true. Amen, Scott? No. <laughs> oh, yes, yes. But it's an excellent tool for helping you apply the grace of the gospel to your heart and life. It explores different texts that speak about being an orphan, identifying idols, and developing your identity as an adopted child of God. Earlier this year, I was invited to speak at a kinship conference that Surge was putting on, and their hope was to develop, and, it's, and they're still working on this, to develop a, a kinship curriculum that's culturally contextual. And I was tasked with speaking on developing a new identity as God's beloved child. And I'm hoping to have a part in the development of that curriculum. And my interest is in, in seeing its focus on the multi-ethnic nature of being a child of God heightening more the, the aspect of kinship, that we are family, that, that we are meant to live together. Not, not merely, sonship to me, it can be taken as just an individualistic thing, but kinship reminds us that, that we're a family, that it's not just an individualistic expression of our faith, building up oneself, but it's for the family, the communal nature of the church. So over the next few weeks, we'll talk about the beauty and the glories of kinship in the family of God, the path to and the destination of kinship. Because it's a quest, folks. It's a quest with a glorious end. Hallelujah. I think we sang about it this morning from Psalm 98. I think I heard that, that being sung. Yeah. See, the first aspect of this kinship, though, being adopted into the family of God is that the orphans have been rescued. Rescued from what? Well, the title of the sermon, I hope, hints at the rescue because it's from the text. Oh, wretched man that I am. We need rescue from ourselves. This rescue includes a problem diagnosed revealing the peril of powerlessness to prisoners of opposing principles, lifting a prayer for deliverance. So let's think about this. The here's the problem. The problem diagnosed in verse 15 through 17. Paul writes, For I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law, that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So the problem diagnosed is that there's something wrong at the core of who I 
am, at the core, there's something wrong at the core of, of who we are. There's something wrong in our identity. And Paul says, for I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Verse, seven, verse 15. And so the matter is fundamental to who you are. I do not do what I want. I do the thing I hate. See, Paul, he's also, he's also writing to the church. He's also writing, it's, and it's the church within a community, within the empire. Paul, and he's using this ancient rhetorical speech and character device. It's where the speaker is impersonating the experience of a person or a class of people, and they're doing this in order to make a point. So, so this is more than just an individual experience. It's more, it's more than just an individual application, because it's not just an individual problem calling for an, indivi an, an individual solution. It's a cultural community and societal problem as well. Every one of us is marred in our identity. And if we're ruined as individuals, it follows that we are collectively marred in our identities and our cultures and, and communities. It's a worldwide problem. You can say amen or oh me, either one. Uh, yes, just think about it. how else do you explain certain experiences in, in the world, certain things that take place? How, how else do you, how do you explain the cry for unity that exists in every nation, every culture, and yet the way that you pursue unity in some places and in a lot of places is to kill the person that you don't like? Those two things don't go together. You, you want right, unity is right. But to murder someone to get you, that's not the way that it should happen. Or, for example, in every nation, in, in every culture, in every society, it says that the exploitation of children is evil. Yet, child sex trafficking continues to increase. How can that be? I mean, if we all agree that it is evil, how is it that this evil continues? There's something, there's something wrong. We desire, we know, we know that something is good and we ought, to, we ought to have it, but yet we aren't finding, we aren't doing What's the problem? Our collective identities are marred, and it's perplexing. It's perplexing. So this, and this is true in our societal identities and our individual identities. It, it, aren't you perplexed sometimes with the things that you do? Okay, yeah, you don't want to say amen. <laughs> See, have you, ever, have you ever said this within yourself? I mean, I know you have because you're human. Yeah. Why did I say that? What? What did I just do? I want to take that back. No, you can't. It's out there. It's too late. Yeah, you, you, we, we've all said that. You've, you've had these experiences. I know that it's wrong, but I'm going to do it anyway. See, the problem isn't the law. The problem's not the law, but it is sin that's wrecking our identity. 
And the text says, now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. I suppose if there's a, if there's a, an, an, a, a classic literary example of this, it's Robert Louis Stevenson's the strange case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Because in, in there, in the, uh, I just recently read the book again. So I'm sharing it with you. <laughs> See, that happens. See, I read a book and you get to hear about it. <laughs> so, but, but here, Dr. Jekyll, he's, he's, he speaks and, and Stevenson writes, <laughs> you think he read Romans 7 when, when he writes about uh, Jekyll's struggle with Hyde because Jekyll saw that, that there were dual identities within him causing him to suffer, as he, in his words, a perennial war in, among his members. And he thought that by separating the two, then relief would come. And so Jekyll says this, he speaks, he writes this, he says, it was on the moral side and in my own person that I learned to recognize the thorough and primitive duality of man. I saw that of the two natures that contended in the field of my consciousness, even if I could rightly be said to be either, it was only because I was radically both. And from an early date, even before the course of my scientific discoveries had begun to suggest the most naked possibility of such a miracle, I had learned to dwell with pleasure as a beloved daydream on the thought of the separation of these elements. If each, I told myself, could be housed in separate identities, life would be relieved of all that was unbearable. The unjust delivered for the aspirations might go his way and remorse of his more upright twin and the just could walk steadfastly and securely on his upward path doing the good things in which he found his pleasure and no longer exposed to disgrace and penitence by the hands of this extraneous evil. You see, Jekyll, he diagnosed the problem. He saw that there's a war happening within at the foundation of who he was, his identity. He thought that if only I can find, if only I can find a technique, if only there was something I could drink, if only there was a pill that I could take that would separate the identities, I will be fixed. But you see... The, the issue isn't as simple as taking a pill or, or drinking a smoothie. You know, like Paul and many of who have gone before us, you have to come face to face with your powerlessness. And that's point number two, the peril of powerlessness. Look at verses 18 to 20. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh, for I have, been, I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. You see, there's a peril. There's a peril of powerlessness against the sin that mars our identity. So, so there's this powerlessness. You see it in verse 18? For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. See, we're powerless. We're powerless to do the righteousness we desire. Now, see this, and this is a result of that doctrine that we talk about a lot, the fall. 
the fall, that, 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 that we are depraved, that there's dep depravity. When Adam and Eve sinned, it ruined us for having power to do what is good. And that word, that word that's translated good, is, it's a rich, it has a rich meaning, and it carries with it the affecting of the mind, agreeable, comforting, and confirming. In other words, if we had the power to do what is right, it would only strengthen us to do more righteousness. Is that not a, would that not be a beautiful thing? And see, I would thought that somebody would say amen. <laughs> yeah, because it, yeah, it, would be, it would be a beautiful thing that you would do more righteousness. But Paul, he, he puts it negatively and he says about, about evil, he says, I desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. You know what he means. You, know, you understand that. Because every person, every person who has sought to discipline themselves in an area, they run into this struggle. For example, the, the child who says, you know, you know, and particularly after you get in trouble, this is something you say as a child. You know, I'm going to, I'm going to do what my mother and father tells me to do. I'm going to do it, like whatever it is. You know, clean my room, take out the trash. You know, whatever. You know, I'm going to do it because I want to do what is right. But it isn't long before you find out that there is something else that 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 competes. Something that you would rather do that's going to be more fun. And, and you, you might get a text from a friend. The call of duty. That's a video game for some folks who don't know that. No, no, no. So, you, yeah, so you set aside what the parents told you so that you can go and, and do this other thing that's more fun. And, and then all of a sudden when you're caught, oh my, you know, well, I wanted to do it. I wanted to do it, but you know, you just lied to yourself and your parents. You see, you're powerless. You desire to do right, but you don't have the ability to carry it out. But it isn't just a child. It isn't just the, that a child has this. Adults face the same problem as well. Because it's the man or, or the woman who vigorously is worshiping on a Sunday morning, but Sunday afternoon and the rest of the week, he or she is angrily cursing their spouse, their children, their co-workers, their boss. You see, you're pow we're powerless. We want it right, but we're powerless. And second, so that, that's the powerlessness, but then there's the peril. There's, there's the peril. The peril is that sin makes us addicts. It makes us addicts. Do you see that in verses 19 and 20? For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. You see, sin will make you an addict. See, that's the peril. That's the peril. You know how you know how addiction. You know, well, so if you never admit that you're addicted to anything, you don't know how addiction works. But you know, but here you know how addiction works. You know, addiction works. It begins with lying to yourself. You know you know the difference. You know the difference between lying to others and and lying to yourself, right? See, when you lie to other people, you do so with a bit of trembling because of the fear of being caught. But when you lie to yourself, there's no trembling. There's no, there's no trembling. Why? And we always believe what we tell ourselves. 
don't we? Now, do you ever look at yourself in the mirror and rebuke yourself? Do you, you don't do that. No, you justify. We justify. We justify ourselves. We justify what it is that we're doing. We, so, see, and that ought to scare us. That ought to scare us. But, but, so, see, see that's, that's the peril. That's the evil. That's evil that I do not want is what I keep on doing. That's the addiction. And the more I commit the sin, the harder it is to escape sin's grasp. Ed Welch in his book, Addictions, a Banquet in the Grave, says all practiced sin teaches us to believe lies. We don't often consider the boomerang effect of our deception. In the end, it will get us. Yeah, you see, so some sins, it's, that's easy to see. It's easy to see that, like alcoholism, pornography, drugs, some sins like that. It's quite obvious. But what about anger? What about abusive language? What about scoffing that takes on the, the, the disguise of, of, of sophisticated argumentation? When all the while, it's, it's killing compassion and engendering hate. What about emotional manipulation? I'm going to kill myself if you don't do X. What about pride of position or status? Where you, 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 you feel superior over those who have less than you, who, who haven't had the accomplishments that you had. What about a lack of patience for other people? Holding a grudge under the guise of, of self-protection. What about overworking? When really, it's greed and envy of what others have. Or the, or the subtle ethnic idolatry that only befriends my kind, my clan, my tribe. You see, that all of, the, all of us, there are, there are several sinful practices that teach us to believe lies. And the more it's practiced, the deeper the sin sinks in its claws. And seeing workers in, in rehabilitation facilities will say, that's addiction. That's addiction. You build an addiction. You know, and they distinguish between addiction and tolerance. You know, so you build an addiction for the drug or the food, the drink, or, or, or whatever the practice. Because the first, the first take, it's sweet, it's pleasing, and you think, it's not so bad. But the more you use it, the more it changes your brain. The more it rewires your brain so that you crave it more and more. And before you know it, the addiction is controlling you. And you become stressed. You become anxious when you aren't getting the stimulation that that thing once provided. And then like that great social commentator, Joan Jett, <laughs> saying in her song, I hate myself for loving you. Can't break free from the things that you do. I want to walk, but I run back to you. You see, I hate myself for loving you. Yeah, see, that's the, that's the peril. That's the peril of addiction. That's the self-hate that it generates. Dr. Jekyll, again, he describes the power of that addiction when he talks about how happy he was when Hyde first took over, but then... Over time, he, he felt the incoherency of his life when, he, when the dissatisfaction of being Jekyll was growing more and more, in his words, more and more unwelcome. 
So Robert Louis Stevenson writes this. I'm telling you, I think he read Romans 7. It was said on this side that my new power tempted me until I fell in slavery. I had but to drink the cup to doff at once the body of the noted professor and to assume like a thick cloak that of Edward Hyde. I smiled at the notion. It seemed to me at the time to be humorous, and I made my preparations with the most studious care. You see the progress of the addiction? You know, that he fell. He's, yeah. I'm dissatisfied with the way I feel. I'm dissatisfied with who I think I am when, and, the, and, and the me that, that everyone has seen. I'm dissatisfied with that. And so, here, I, I fell into slavery. He had to, he said, he had to drink the cup. And then when he drank it, he felt the pleasure of getting rid of that old self, that old Dr. Jekyll. And then he made preparations to continue to live as in being Mr. Hyde. That's what happens. That's the progress of addiction. It's the peril of powerlessness. We're powerless and sin makes you an addict. And in this, we find we are prisoners of opposing principles. Look at verses 21 and 23. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. So you see, there are two opposing principles that Paul says make him a captive. You know, what are they? Well, the principle of his mind that he wants and, and he delights in the law of God, the, the law of Moses, so those Ten Commandments. But then there's another principle that he wants to do, that he finds. I want to do what's right, but when I do, evil is close at hand. And both things, Paul says, are within his body. Do you see the dilemma? The one law is God's law, and it's good, and it's right, and it's holy. It's the law that he delights in. The law can tell him what sin is. It can show him right from wrong, what it looks like. And the, but the other law is the law of sin that dwells in his body, that law that, that opposes the law of God. And it can, take the law, it can take the law of God and turn it against him since he's powerless to keep the law. The law of sin says, try to keep the law. Try to please God in obeying his commandments. And then it mocks and says, you can't do it. You're powerless and guilty. You're a prisoner, captive, without hope. You're on your own, an orphan from righteousness. That sin working in says, says, look at the law. Look at the beauty of the law reflecting God's character. Look at the wonder of its holiness as it's perfect. And you know you don't measure up. Look at how the law's goodness and, and desires, its nobility and, and, and its praiseworthiness. See it, but you can't get it on your own. See, the law of sin that dwells in our members, it mocks us. But here is where we can take heart and be glad that you know there is a struggle. Hallelujah. Yeah, so if, you don't, if you don't struggle, you may not be a Christian. Because if you don't see any harm in sin, if you feel no grief over the sins that you've committed, can you say that you've been forgiven? Can you say that you've repented? Can you say that, that, that you have taken in Christ? 
Lord, if you recognize and you know that there's a struggle, you know that God, that hey, I am not fulfilling this law, and somehow I need help. See, you see, what, you see, you know what Paul is doing here. See, from chapter 1 to chapter 7, Paul is now answering his critics. He, he was chased all over the place, and people were running behind him, telling him that this message is wrong. This message of grace is wrong. And Paul is answering all their objections that have been raised because his opponents would say that grace, that, because Paul has said grace has included Gentiles into the promise that is from God. And we heard that over the last several weeks. But the Gentiles, he's showing that the Gentiles are in both Jew and Gentile, that the beauty and the goodness and the holiness of the law could not, cannot be gained by their effort or obedience since they both failed. Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But now there's this righteousness that comes from God apart from the law. And they object. No, it can't be. And Paul is saying, yes, this is true. Because his opponent said, you're saying keep on sinning, that grace may abound. See, they objected. We can sin since we are not under the law, but under grace. Paul's, you know, they stood, they opposed Paul, they opposed the apostle who, and would say that he was dishonoring the law by replacing it with grace. And Paul has answered them all by saying, no, the law is good. Sin is the problem. The law can't give life. It can only show you your sin. The law's work is to bring sin to the forefront so you can diagnose the problem since the peril. Fill the chains, fill the prison bars of the law of sin that dwells in your members and cry out for deliverance. That's point, this is point number four. There's a prayer for deliverance. Look at verse 24 and 25. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from the, this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. You hear the prayer? Who will deliver me from this body of death? That's to say, you're not going to find a new identity by looking within you. You're not going to reform your way out of this prison. You're hopelessly imprisoned. This prayer is where you start, where you are getting on the path to rescue. Michael Byrd, in his commentary on Romans, addresses this present-day dilemma of, of people responding to the message of Romans 7 when he says, he writes this, he says, When a person truly grasps that they are in such a state of desperation, they are a step closer to realizing that every code, creed, ritual, resolution, and philosophy that they've tried has epically failed to make them a complete human being. Neither a Buddhist therapist nor Hindu guru, neither Hollywood religion nor holiday religion, neither rules nor religion, neither karma nor the Dalai Lama. None of these has made a difference in their behavior. Nothing has fixed the evil impulse inside them, and no one has led them to a point of actual transformation. See, Dr. Jekyll, he knew no savior. He died uncertain of what would happen to Hyde, even though Hyde was him. His last words in the story are, 
Here then, as I lay down the pen and, and proceed to seal up my confession, I bring the life of that unhappy Henry Jekyll to an end. See, friends, if you've agonized, you've, everyone who has agonized with the problem of their identity marred and, and have stumbled over the perplexing nature of not being able to understand their own actions or that of the cultures and humanities, need not despair. Everyone who has felt the peril of powerlessness, knowing that they can't break the power of their addiction to sin or, or on their own, on your own, you, you, can, you can cry out and be heard. Everyone who has felt like an orphan, alone, and trying to work your way to freedom while being imprisoned between two opposing principles can take the hope that the wretched man has a wonderful savior. Hallelujah. Zechariah. Speaking uh, to, to captives, he describes this wonderful Savior. He says, behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Now, I know that this is typically a Palm Sunday passage, but this, it's, it's true no, no matter what day of the week it is and whatever. Yeah, it is true that Jesus is the king who has come to bring righteousness and having salvation. Hear him speaking. Hear him speaking. I will cut off the chariots from Ephraim, the war horse from Jerusalem. The battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea, from the river to the ends of the earth. I will set the prisoners free from the waterless pit. Return to your stronghold, O prisoners of hope. Today I declare that I will restore to you double. Isn't that a beautiful picture? And what a great word, prisoners of hope. Hallelujah. Yeah, this is, this, is, this is Jesus. See, does Jesus hold you captive? Remember the text said about that, what, that this promise is based on the blood of the covenant. Whose blood is that? What blood is he talking about? Well, he's talking about the blood of Christ. He's talking about the blood of the Son, who through, we say it every, every communion, you know, we say it, you know, who through the blood of the eternal covenant has brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep. Through him we are equipped with everything good for doing his will, that we might do what is pleasing in his sight. See, aren't you glad? Aren't you glad that the text doesn't end with that cry of hopelessness? <laughs> you can feel the dark clouds of the storms of sin moving out, letting in the sunshine of the Savior. But it doesn't end with hopelessness. It ends with this shout of victory. Thanks be to God. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, there is a Savior. There is a rescuer. He rescues us from the law. He rescues us from the power of sin. He rescues us from ourselves, from the bo this body of death. See, Jesus has given us the goodness of the law by becoming sin for us, that the righteous requirements of the law, its beauty, its goodness, its holiness, might be given to us through him. See, Jesus 
has broken the power of sin by dying in our place. 1 Peter 3.18 says this, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. You see, Jesus delivered us from this body of death by bearing our sin in his body on the tree that we might die to sin. This is 1 Peter chapter 2. And live to righteousness by his wounds, the text says, we are, we have been healed. You see, this is the grace of God. This is the grace of God that solves the problem of our identities. This is the grace that gives us power over sin. This is the grace that has freed us from the opposing principles and beckons us to kinship since we are united with Christ. This is the grace that restores our hearts to love Christ and each other. Yeah, see, and it is that restoration. Perhaps you're here today and you, need, you know you need that restoration. Fanny Crosby in, in a, her hymn, we don't sing it that often, but we're going to sing it here in a minute. But that great hymn, Rescue the Perishing, it's that third line that, that gets to me when she says, down in the human heart, crushed by the tempter. Feelings lie buried that grace can restore. Touched by a loving heart, wakened by kindness. Chords that are broken will vibrate once more. And maybe that's your heart this morning. You hear this message and you hear how you sense the desperation Friend, you have a savior. The last line of the song, rescue the perishing, care for the dying, snatch them in pity from sin in the grave, weep for the erring one, lift up the fallen, tell them of Jesus the mighty to save. That's not the last line, that's the first verse. <laughs> rescue the perishing, care for the dying, Jesus is merciful, Jesus will save. Fellow wretches, we have a wonderful Savior. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, what a privilege it is for us to bow before you and call you Father. To have your love set upon us eternally. We didn't deserve it. But you, Lord, are determined not to lose us. And you brought us, you want us. You want us through your kindness, through your love, through the grace that you have given to us, through your son, Lord. Let this love of yours melt our hearts toward you and toward each other. So that this beautiful rescue that you have provided, Lord, is, is what's on our lip. It's forefront in our thinking as we approach each other, as we approach the watching world. That we, Lord, may glorify you for what you have provided in rescuing us as we were perishing. Thank you. Thank you for hearing us. We ask this through your son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.